You are listening to the politicalbetting.com Polling Matters podcast. My name is Kieran Pedley. So we are back on this show with a sort of more uh, standard show, for want of a better phrase, uh, with myself and uh, fellow podcaster Leo Barassi. Um, I'll introduce Leo in a minute, but we're going to be going through all of the numbers um, ahead of this uh, the coming election this Thursday. Um, those that listen to this podcast feed regularly will have noticed that there's a combination of two uh, two different podcasts on the feed. So you've got the Ipsos Mori Elections podcast, which has a range of different different guests on different subjects. And I do advise uh, listeners to Polling Matters to check that out because a lot of the same sort of subject matter is in those podcasts. So data and polling and politics and things. Um, but this this podcast is uh, what you've come to expect, I think, over the last uh, sort of few years. Uh, me and Leo look, looking at the numbers. But Leo, uh, welcome back to the show. Hello, Kieran. It's good to be back. So we've got what? A few days left. Um, so we've had a, we've had the the bulk of the campaign so far. What have you noticed? So a bunch of different things, of course. So uh, the Labour campaign, I think, has been perhaps perhaps predictably, but strikingly ambitious and bold. Um, and I think the certainly the evidence from the focus groups is that there's been a couple of elements for it of it that have been problematic for a lot of potential Labour voters. And I guess the most ambitious things that have been, I think in a lot of people's eyes, quite strong cultural signifiers of where Labour's going, even if they're purely economic policies. So things like the free broadband policy, the idea of a four day a week, even if perhaps it's not a policy, not in a manifesto. It's clear from the focus groups that those are things that for many people have stood out as signs of where Labour is, um, and for many people not in a positive way. Um, I think standing out in its absence as well, the uh, uh, lack of scrutiny of the attention, or uh, lack of scrutiny of the detail of the Johnson Brexit deal, um, there's clearly a huge debate that could be had about what it means for the future of the union and what kind of relationship we want with other countries which i think has largely been absent even uh labor's attempt to talk about the nhs and the trump trade deals notwithstanding um i think generally the failure of both the lib dems and the labor party to come to brexit policies that worked for their voters um and stood up to scrutiny has been uh, I, I would I would say actually surprising. I think for me, a month or so ago, it did feel to, uh, like both parties had landed on policies that um, they were comfortable with and and didn't look absurd. But they clearly have not stood the test of an election campaign. And then lastly, the salience of anti-Semitism has has been striking. Um, and if not entirely unexpected, I think a, a novelty of this election campaign that uh, hasn't uh, hasn't stood out so well so much in the past. Um, and in fact, the direct comparison there is if you look at the 2017 campaign and how Corbyn um, was attacked significantly for his links to uh, the, uh, various uh, um, unpleasant groups, uh, to say the least. Um, that didn't stick. I think it's been very different this time. Yes, yeah, so lots to un- lots to unpick there, and we'll go we'll go through that in, in detail in this podcast. I mean, for me, the obvious standout thing, and we'll come to the numbers um, in, in the next segment of this show, is clearly how the two main parties have once again squeezed the vote of smaller parties um, to dominate this uh, campaign. I mean, depending on they don't seem to be back where they were in terms of eighty percent of the vote, between eighty plus percent of the vote between them. But if you look at voting intention polls at the moment, it's clear that Labour and the Conservatives have both picked up significantly during the campaign at the expense 
of the Brexit Party in, in, uh, and the Lib Dems, in, in the former's case, probably largely self-inflicted by their decision to, to not stand against Conservatives and Conservative seats. Um, but the Lib Dems have had a difficult campaign, which we'll come to. It's also what stood out to me, I think, is just the lack of really any any sort of wowzer moment. I mean, the manifestos in the uh, last campaign in 2017, and it's hard not to compare to 2017, isn't it? Because it's so recent um, mm. and it's the last one, obviously. But the, the, the Labour manifesto in particular uh, seemed to be a real game-changing moment for the party there. I don't think that their manifesto this time has had that oomph factor. Um, I think maybe because of all the, the stuff around tuition fees and, and that sort of thing has been done. So it, so um, that's maybe not had the impact this time, which has led them to focus on uh, policies which are maybe a bit bit more... I don't know if out there is the word, but like things like broadband, free broadband... Um, and the four-day week and things like that don't seem like sort of bread and butter issues uh, for people. Um, and I think on the conservative side, obviously they've, they've deliberately tried to fight a cautious campaign, haven't they? Um, after what mm. happened in 2017, so you know the conservative manifesto was deliberately vague uh, and deliberately bare bones. So it's almost like uh, the conservatives have tried to play it safe, and Labour have struggled to have the same sort of wow factor that they had in 2017. But I guess we'll wait and see what happens. Um, in the coming days. Um, who do we think has had a good and bad campaign then? I mean, I think um, it's easy to judge before, maybe it's dangerous to judge uh, before the, the votes are cast. An obvious candidate for having a good campaign, um, I would say, is, is, the, is the Tories, bizarrely. You might not like the campaign. You might, not, you might think they've avoided scrutiny with Andrew Neil, with the Andrew Neil interview with Boris Johnson and that sort of thing. Um, and you might criticise the manifesto for being bare bones, but I mean, steady as she goes, so far seems to have worked in their favour, right? Yeah, they very effectively framed a campaign around an extremely small number of issues, principally Brexit and the Brexit, get Brexit done, done approach, which um, perhaps wasn't obvious that there would be a space for a campaign that was so narrowly focused uh, because it could invite scrutiny on a on a policy that. Um, undoubtedly has flaws that lots of people even uh, Brexit supporters would find when they had their attention drawn to it but the reality is there's not been anyone in a position to take that on and unpick the policy because everyone has Brexit policies that uh, that uh, wither under fire uh, so yeah they've fought a campaign that it feels very Linton Crosby-ish and um, it does feel like it's worked very well of uh, leading on their strongest issue with the people that they're trying to target and avoiding scrutiny on anything that might be more difficult for them. I suppose, I suppose the unknown from the Conservative perspective is that if we look at vote share, they seem to be back in the 40s quite consistently with pretty much every pollster. So, you know, vote share wise, they seem to have had a good campaign, I think, unless you think they should be in the late 40s and 50s. I don't think most people would expect that. Um, but I suppose the real acid test for their campaign is going to be, can they convert that vote share into seats in the areas that they want to? I'm going to try and avoid using the phrase wed, wed, wed Roy Hodgson there, red wall. Um, I don't want to import these Americanisms too much, but I mean, I suppose you're going to have to, we have to see on Thursday whether they can convert that into seats. Yeah, in the I mean, the, the other thing about it is, 
um, certainly compared with what we were talking about uh, only a few weeks ago, they also seem to be holding up better in defending some of the seats that had looked like they were quite likely losses. So some of the Liberal Romanian seats to the Lib Dems and some of the Scottish seats to the SNP feel like the Tories might have a better chance of holding on to them than, than it looked like. So uh, and obviously that, that makes a huge difference because any loss of seats to either of those parties is effectively... a uh, requires having to uh well win two seats to be able to um move towards the majority i mean another i mean purely on a polling perspective another area the conservatives seem to have done reasonably well so far is in scotland um if you just look at there's now the, the challenge of scottish polling is there isn't a lot of it about so we had a poll out last week um panel base are fairly regular and the yougov as well i i don't think i've seen one from Salvation, but um damien will correct me if i'm wrong um from scotland so if i've missed anything out people let me know um but i think another party that's got a good good shout at having a good campaign i think so far looks like the smp um, so just to put numbers to that, uh, the result in Scotland in vote share terms last time, I'm rounding this up, uh, was SNP 37, Con 29, Lab 27. Again, that's rounded just for simplicity. Um, the vote, the most recent polls from uh, YouGov and ourselves had the SNP on 44. Uh, panel base more recently had the SNP on 39, so only slightly up on um, on 2017. Um, the Conservatives on 26, 28 and 29 so again, in and around where they were, um, but Labour very much down on their 27. So anywhere between 21 um, with panel base to 15 with YouGov, and we had them on 16. So again, look, you know, there isn't a lot of polling in Scotland. We do have to caveat it with that. But even the smallest, um, the smallest SNP lead uh, with panel base in that most recent poll, um, Professor John Curtis um, was, was was saying looks like it would give the SNP a gain of six seats. Uh, 12 for the Tories, which is down one, five for the Lib Dems, which is up one, and one for Labour, which is down six. So again, we can't know until next Thursday what's going to happen there. But if the SNP are gaining seats, and even the most conservative polling there suggests that they will, that's presumably a good day for them on Thursday. Yeah. In- interestingly, it's worth pointing out, of course, that um, that relatively strong Tory performance in Scotland comes despite losing Ru- Ruth Davidson, which when that happened, uh, was widely seen as a blow to the Tories' chances of uh, defending the seats of Scotland. But actually, look at it, their numbers have uh, have only gone upwards since uh, Ruth Davidson announced her resignation, which well, is perhaps surprising. Well, what we can't know until we get the post-election data and all the rest of it, but we, we can obviously discuss it here, is um, why that might be. I, mean, I, I do wonder whether Nicola Sturgeon standing up and saying, oh, well, of course Jeremy Corbyn would do a deal with me and... and um, you know, he might say he's not going to give us a referendum, but that's not really his call. You know, th- these sorts of messages. Um, maybe that does galvanise the the unionist vote in Scotland, which people f- should forget um, did win the referendum uh, in, mm. in, in um, when was it, 2014. So it's uh, it's obviously a significant political force. So conservative uh, unionism in Scotland isn't an insignificant um, group of people politically. Um, and I suppose um, at election time, the Conservatives are the very obvious place for them to go. I mean, it'd be interesting to see how Labour get on. Um, it might very well be, once again, that um, people don't pay a lot of attention to Scotland during the campaign. Um, but actually, when it comes to adding up the seats on Thursday night, it could be that that's the difference. Who knows? Um, let's talk about bad campaign. There's an obvious candidate for that for me, which is the Lib Dems. Um, we'll come to the voting tension stuff in more detail soon, but it looks like they've lost 
something in the region that they were in the upper teens now they're in the lower teens in terms of uh, voting intention um our weekly ipsos mori campaign tracker has joe swinson's favorability ratings going from minus 20 at the beginning of the campaign so not popular um but to minus 31 now um she seemed to fall off a cliff a little bit from minus 19 to minus 31 the weekend after so a poll that was taken the weekend after her question time um her performance now I'm very reluctant to say that's why it was completely although you know millions of people millions of people are watching yeah, these right. things and, 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 and of course this is a moment when a lot of people effectively have seen her for the first time right yeah and i, I think it's um there's an element of it when i look at these sorts of things sometimes where i think well okay it might not be solely because of that but if it's not that well, what is it then are we, are we just to assume that it's just people just woke up one sunday morning and done a poll and suddenly decided they don't like her i mean it's clear, whichever, anyway, whichever, uh, that's just one data, set of data points that I've got there. Um, but your voting intention terms, um, favorability towards the Lib Dems, whatever, you name it, they seem to have had a tough campaign, don't they? Yeah, and I think there's a question that is really important to understand of whether this is a Joe Swinson problem or is a Lib Dem and Lib Dem policy problem at the moment. So the question time she was absolutely brutal for her, but it was very much focused around one, the revoke article 50 policy and to her record in coalition now those are obviously things that um are choices in the case of article 50 or just something about the party that is going to take them a while to shake off and uh, it's only been four years since coalition ended so um obviously for for many people that's too soon um but is that really it or is this that people are just not warming to her and another leader would be able to do very different? Um, like I do feel that two years ago, the coalition didn't loom so large in criticisms of Lib Dem. It was very much, it seemed at the time, as being about Farron and his position on homosexuality. Um, so I don't know. It's interesting. Is Is this... Is this as simple as it's the policies and it's about it's about the coalition, or I mean, is this another moment where people are looking at a woman leader and just finding some reasons to dislike her that always seems to happen every time? It's, it's very hard to it's very hard to um, know for sure um, on that on that latter point, isn't it? Because it's you're not going to get that in polling. You're not going to get people. No. You're not going to get people that say, "Well, actually, I'm I'm misogynistic, so <laughs> so uh, I don't like Joe Swinson." Um, so I, it's quite hard to make a judgment. I'm sure there's there's I'm sure that's part of it, but it's quite hard to make a judgment as to what what's how much of a part of it there is. I mean, there is clearly issues with the two things you've raised. I do think that it's been underestimated uh, the Lib Dems' uh, role in the coalition. Um, partly because if you've got to look at who, what type of voters they're trying to win over, right? I mean, they've been trying to win over Labour Remainers. Um, okay, not just Labour, on, but on the Tory side too. Um, mm. But and I feel like, I feel like they've sort of tied themselves in knots a bit because on the one hand, um, Joe Swinson's tried to be almost uh, sort of the centrist. I mean, I think when they came out of their spending plans, I forget exactly what they were, but it was very the message was very much to Tory Remainers that we're fiscally if not fiscally conservative that we we're yeah aren't they the only ones who are planning on reducing the uh, the the debt yeah so i mean so on the one hand saying things like that isn't necessarily going to appeal to people on the labor side so they've sort of twisted themselves in knots a little bit and i think on the revoke policy it's very easy to be wise after the event but this is what party leaders are are there to do they're to make the big calls and i think they've really again twisted themselves in knots tied themselves up in knots because 
Um, on the one hand, they can say, well, it's not un- it's not undemocratic to uh, promise to cancel Brexit because if we won, if we won the election, uh, then we would have the mandate through having won that election to to do that. The problem is, no one really believes the Liberal Democrats are, are going to win the election. And back at, back six weeks ago, when we were asking people what do you think the most likely outcome is, you'd get about two percent say that they thought the Lib Dems would win. So, yeah, and to be honest, I'm not even sure that people are buying that. It's like, I can see how that is a logical argument, but I'm not sure that even many Remainers are accepting. Yeah, if the Lib Dems got 35% and somehow came out as the largest party, then that's the mandate for them to stop Brexit entirely. And what was striking... There is a, there is the feeling that a referendum trumps a general election on this. Yeah, and what was striking in those favourability numbers that I read out earlier is actually uh, Joe Swinson's numbers tended to fall more with Remainers than with Leavers. Now, I should caveat that with the point that her numbers were overwhelmingly negative with Leavers in the first place, for very obvious reasons to do with Brexit. So still overwhelmingly more popular with um, with Remainers than Leavers. But it, but, it, but the, the drop in her scores were, were motivated by Remainers, not Leavers. And that was where they, they, they were just kind of still very unpopular numbers with Leavers. So it's yeah, so, so, I mean, you made the point a minute ago that um, this is obviously a question of leadership and you're a leader to make a big call. I think what, what for me, has actually been a defining feature of this election has been uh, a couple of actually really bad decisions on policy by, by both the Lib Dems and Labour. Um, so we just talked about Revoke. I, I mentioned earlier some of Labour's uh, more ambitious policies around um, things like the free broadband in particular, but also some of the other noises they made around the four-day week and so on. Um, and it feels to me like surely those things were tested extensively in focus groups. Um, at the time, the Revoke policy didn't seem a terrible idea uh, to me as a way of signalling Lib Dems as being uh, the boldest and the most pro-Remain party. But if you if you tested uh, with a bunch of focus groups the uh, the policy and the attack lines to it, probably you would have seen that people, including many Remainers, as as you just alluded to, would respond really bad to it. And I guess it's left me wondering: Have the part the parties not been using focus groups to to test some of these things, or have they been been using them and ignoring the findings? Because it feels to me like these these are mistakes that really could have been avoided and perhaps made the campaign a lot more competitive had they been. It's hard to second guess, isn't it? Because you don't know what people have done. But one of the things that I've noticed in this campaign um, on the public side is there's been there's been it feels like anyway more use of focus groups to uh create copy for news outlets right yeah um yeah. and there were some groups recently in birmingham i think was it um and uh, with, with sort of labor voters who were uh leave and um were undecided about who they were going to vote for next time i think the challenge of focus groups and you and i both know this is that um yes they're really valuable and i don't want to gloss over this point they are really valuable in getting under the skin of why people feel the way they do and in um testing messages you might bring to the wider public but Mm. they're also subject to the recruitment and um, if you're not recruiting the right groups of people in the first place, or if you're rec- or if you're recruiting groups that are very very specific, uh, maybe you're missing out on other people that might be relevant later down the line. So, for example, the Lib Dems, and this is guess with guessing. I'm just sort of I'm just using this as an example of how research is used in this context. If the Lib Dems were focus grouping some of these policies among really committed Remainers, maybe they tested very well, but maybe they wouldn't have tested very well with less committed Remainers, and obviously. The remain universe, if you want to call it that, is huge. So maybe they're 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 losing a lot of soft sort of labour remainers back to labour because 
the policy doesn't test as well with them as it might do with the committed Remainers that might have voted for them in the Euros. Yeah, 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 quite, quite possibly. And I think it's also about understanding... And this is why I think focus groups are really useful. Uh, the response to the attack lines, because it's all it's all well and good saying, "Oh yeah, Lib Dems will stop Brexit and end the madness," and getting people to nod along to it. But you also need to know, well, how do they respond when they hear uh, the the Tories saying, or even Labour saying, "That's you, that's awful. You can't do that. That's totally undemocratic." And mm. uh, how do how do people feel about it when they thought about the other side of the arguments? which obviously maps real life much better. Let's move on to the the big question everyone will ask, which is um, I mean, essentially the question of the result, what's going to happen on Thursday. Um, yeah. All the usual caveats apply. But I suppose the big question on everyone's lips, Leo, is will there be a hung parliament? Um, to me, the data seems to be pointing quite consistently through this election campaign to a Tory majority. Um, you know, don't ask me what size, but... Um, obviously it's quite a common uh, refrain for people on Twitter and, and other outlets to say, well, it looks like a Tory majority, but a hung parliament could happen. Are people just covering the bases? No, I think that is the right thing to say. And I think uh, the lesson for me of the last few years has been, sure, you can identify what result you think is the most likely, but if you go into any election, uh, well, not any election, but elections like this that are reasonably close and say, um, this is definitely what's going to happen and I'm extremely confident about it, you're really misinterpreting the the data and, uh, and misleading people. So I guess... I. I would say very roughly, we might call it something like 50% chance of the Tories having a fairly small uh, majority. By fairly small, I mean, let's say between 20 and 60. Um, Obviously, 60 is not that small, but um, not a landslide. Uh, Let's say a 30% chance of them having a majority bigger than that, and 20% chance of them having something smaller than that, all the way down to a hung parliament. So, yeah, I think a fair, a reasonably sized Tory majority is the most likely, but I think we absolutely shouldn't rule out the chance of a hung parliament. I mean, there are there are still polls coming out that are putting it as something in the territory of eight points, and eight points is really only a moderate-sized late swing or a moderate-sized polling error away from it being a hung parliament, and those things can't be ruled out. So if you look at the Britain elects polling average, and uh, for reasons we might come into, I mean, the polling averages will only tell you so much when there is a spread of uh, what pollsters think. Um, that has CON 42, Lab 33, Lib Dems 13, Brexit Party 3. Um, so a lead, not that you should look at the lead always, but a lead uh, for the Tories of nine um, versus 11 at the start of the campaign when both parties were on um, uh, lower vote shares because the Lib Dems and Brexit Party were higher. Um, so what, I mean... How does a hung parliament happen then? I mean, what, what? So you said polling miss. I mean, what are the signs that that could happen? Or po- polling miss or late swing, I suppose. Well, I think one of the other things that we have to add is there's still a reasonable size spread among the pollsters. So even calling it a polling miss might might not be quite right. So um, BMG and ICM have, as as a, as far as I can tell, not yet published their final polls. Um, they had six point and seven point Tory leads respectively in their last polls. So when they come out, if their if their final polls are the same as their last ones, we'll have a range of six point Tory lead to fifteen point Tory lead, and that's obviously uh, I mean fifteen point is obviously a huge Tory majority, uh, absolute landslide, but six uh, could well be a, a hung parliament. So um, I don't think actually even having said what I said that 
it has to be interpreted as a polling error or even as a late swing. I mean, it could just be that the people who weighted it in a particular way and um, whose turnout model was uh, was aligned a particular way were the ones who got it right and uh, and others didn't. And kind of to uh, to answer that, you have to start really looking under the bonnets of understanding how different polls, uh, pollsters were interpreting turnout. Yeah, and I think. One of the questions I often get asked is, can you can you explain why the, the different pollsters have different numbers? And um, I, I'll try and delve into that a little bit now, but it, it, it's quite hard to disaggregate all of the different steps that pollsters take. So um, it's not like every pollster has exactly the same methodology apart from one thing. And that one thing explains um, why um, sort of some pollsters have the gap at sort of six, seven, eight, and others have it at sort of anywhere between uh, sort of twelve and fifteen. Um, one of the areas that does seem to does seem to be important is to do with how people treat past vote um, and past vote weighting. So this is where um, a pollster will try and make sure. Well, it's a judgment call actually. It will, will try and make sure that their sample is politically representative by how people voted before. So in theory, you want a sample that um, is fifty-two percent leave and 48% remain um, or in GB terms 42% Tory vote from 2017 40% Labour vote from 2017 it gets complicated when you factor in people that didn't vote last time and so on um, now as far as I can tell some of the, the pollsters that have the gap a bit smaller seem to be waiting directly to past vote um, if that's not true people do tell me and I'll correct it I'll correct the record as it were um, but from what I can tell from the tables, uh, I was looking at sort of Comres and ICM, it looks like the balance of Leavers and Remainers, for example, is exactly uh, sort of 52-48, um, and, and, and similarly the 2017 vote is exactly as it was last time. Now, if you're, if you're doing that based on how people tell you they voted last time, as opposed to knowing, so for example, I know YouGov um, know how people voted last time because they asked them at the time, then there's a risk that what happens is, you, and there's some evidence for this, that you uh, overstate Labour because um, there's some evidence um, that from, from data we've looked at and you've looked at that um, Labour voters from uh, 2017 are sort of less likely to acknowledge they voted Labour. So if you weight your sample to be um, 40% Labour, as it were, from in, in 2017 terms, then you might end up overstating them because you're getting people that don't tell you they voted Labour also in the sample. So you so, so you have the all the people who voted Labour plus some extra people who uh, did vote Labour but, but didn't tell uh, you. now saying that they didn't. Now, obviously, the, the, the question here, and I should say from an Ipsos Mori perspective, is we've, as a matter of company policy, we've never voted by past vote at all uh, sorry weighted by past vote at all um partly because uh of, of, the, of the issue of false recall and not knowing how exactly the best way is to correct for that so it's something you look at but we don't wait by it um so and these are judgment calls and i don't want to i don't want to sit here and suggest oh well, clearly the people that have done if, if they have and i don't know uh for certain that's how they've tackled it in terms of asking basing their waiting on how they've done it asked it now um, how, how people are responding to that question now um, but that is one way that you could explain why some of the numbers are different because if your sample politically is is uh balanced differently going in then everything else sort of flows from that um regard but then regardless of how you treat turnout or how you treat don't knows and all sorts of things like this um so i mean we can't really know who's going to be right there we just have to wait and see what happens uh, on thursday the the second question is a run of late swing, um, which is always uh, a poll. poll it feels like every, everyone's uh, get out clause. Are the polls yeah. were wrong because it was a late swing? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's the pollster's yeah, friend, it isn't it? Um, yeah. yeah, and I mean, like, so I suppose the question is: w Is there evidence that that could happen, and who would it benefit? 
So looking at our numbers, so our most recent poll had uh, Con 44, Labour 32, um, after the turnout filter was applied. So this is after we sort of filtered by 9 or 10 out of 10, certain to vote, um, always usually sometimes vote in the past and being registered to vote. Before we applied that turnout filter, our numbers were 42, 33, so a nine-point conservative lead. If you just factor in anybody that says they'll vote, regardless of how likely they are to vote. So a range of nine to 12, which gives you a good good indication that there's some of the different numbers you can get, depending on how you treat uh, uh, treat your sample. Um, so, okay, late swing. So first and foremost, if you just go to the very beginning of our poll, when we ask people how they'll vote, 21% say they're undecided. So 31, Conservatives 31, Labour 22, Lib Dems 9, undecided to 21. Um, and Remainers are more undecided than Leave voters. So 22% of Remainers undecided versus 12% of Leavers. Okay, so maybe that, so. there's some evidence that the Remainers are a bit more undecided. Similarly, Labour and Lib Dem voters, 23% uh, of Labour voters from 2017 undecided, 22% of Lib Dems from 2017 undecided, 15% of Conservatives from 2017 undecided. So lots of numbers here. But basically, the Remain side, the Labour Lib Dem side, more likely to say they don't know uh, who they're going to vote for than the Conservative and Leave side. So, so to be clear, when you're saying undecided, these are people who are, are saying don't know in the in the voting intent question. So at the moment, they're not yet on any party. So, so it's not like these are Labour voters who are saying, but I might change my mind. No, so we'll, we'll come to that. So who, these, are, these are people who that... we would think are, might be Labour or Lib Dem voters because they're Remainers. But you haven't yet chosen the party. But but also but also they vote they say they voted for those two parties before in right, twenty seventeen. So when I'm referring to them as Labour and Lib Dem there, they voted that way in twenty seventeen. Yeah. So before we even get to whether you'll change your mind, um that's the, there's signs that the Remain side are a bit more undecided where they're gonna go than Lib Which sound, which sounds like a, a pretty encouraging sign for them, right? If these are people who uh if they turn out and vote, then the chances are they will vote Labour or Lib Dem. Now, the important point here is we don't just exclude them from our polls. So, so some, sometimes people will just remove don't knows completely. And that can create more volatility when you've got these differences. We do ask what people call a squeeze question, where we say, OK, but if you were going to vote, which way are you inclined to vote, for example? And then they are put into the poll based on that based on that evidence. So in a way, these, these groups of people are already factored into our headline numbers because we ask which way are you inclined to vote? And then we reallocate them based on that. However, I, I still think it's relevant that their first instinct is to tell us they don't know. So I, so right, but if, but if, as you say, they're in your latest headline number and actually they're undecided, doesn't that flip what we just said a minute ago and means that actually they're undecided, thus means that they, although at the moment we think of them as Labour and Lib Dem voters, then there's a reasonable chance they might drop out. So actually instead of this being good news for those parties, it's bad news. It could be. I think I wouldn't go too far down that road yet. I I, I would just say um, there is about one in five undecideds at the very get at the get go, and they tend to be on the Remain side. Even though we do ask them if you did decide, who would you vote for, and we take them at face value there. So that so that's the first point. The second point is, regardless of whether people are undecided or not, when we get a voting intention out of them, we say, okay, have you definitely decided to vote that way? or uh, might you change your mind? And similarly, we see 27% uh, overall might change their mind. So this isn't just about don't knows in the first place. This is people that have said, yeah, I'll vote, I'll vote this way. Um, one in f more than one in four say they might change their mind, which alone which alone would give someone current encouragement, although, although this number isn't that different to previous elections. It was, um, 
uh, one in five just before the election in 2017, but it's been as high as 34% in 2015. So 27% saying I might change my mind isn't particularly unusual. But again, the point is that Labour and Lib Dem voters now, so people that say they'll vote for them now, are the most likely to change their mind, as are a third of 18 to 34-year-olds, interestingly. Now, so to put some numbers to that, 31% of Labour voters, 29% of Lib Dem voters say they might change their mind, whereas on the Conservative side, 8 in 10 Conservatives say they definitely decided to vote that way. So again, that that sounds like that's reinforcing the conclusion from a minute ago, right? That yeah. Labour and Lib Dem have the highest share of their voters who say they might actually go and vote for somebody else. Yes, and I think that now there's one caveat here, a different election, but we had a similar thing in the European elections, which we got right, uh, which where, what we, and you know, part of why we were a bit nervous was because we had the Lib Dems in second, and a lot, a lot of the, a lot of the, a lot of the Lib Dem Labour Remain side were saying that they might change their mind going into that election, and they didn't. And in the yep. end, our poll was was correct. Now, I'm not saying that's going to happen here necessarily, but the point is, just because there is this uncertainty doesn't necessarily mean you're going to get a shift one way or another. But mm. I guess we've thrown a lot of numbers at the listener here. But I think the point is that there's evidence that the Conservative vote seems pretty solid. Certainly, more so the Leave vote and the Conservative vote seems pretty solidly behind the Conservatives. And that's good news for them, obviously, because they're in the 40s, pretty much of everybody. But on the Remain side, there is a bit of uncertainty. So you can interpret that in a couple of different ways. If you're Labour, you can go and say, right, okay, as it gets closer to the polling day, we're going to squeeze the Lib Dems even more by a few points because there's clearly evidence in the data that the people on the Remain side are wavering, either undecided in the first place or even if they've given a voting intention, they've said they might change their mind. I suppose the flip side to that, I'm not, I'm not sure how much I believe this, but I don't think you can discount it completely is that there might be some Labour voters who do go Lib Dem last minute because they just don't want to hold their nose and vote Corbyn. And when I say that, that's partly because Corbyn's ratings are very bad. And you do, you do get a lot of this in the data of people saying, well, I don't really like Corbyn, but I'll vote Labour anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe you will get a bunch of people at the last minute that say, oh, you know what, in the end, I was going to vote Labour because it's, it's Labour versus Conservative in the end. Actually, I can't do it. I'm going to vote Lib Dem. So you shouldn't assume that it only goes one direction uh, towards in Labour's favour. Um, it might cancel itself out or it might even you might even find that Lib Dems do better than they currently look like because of this. Yeah, I mean, of course, it could it could generally be tact- uh, a sign that there's more willingness to vote tactically, right? It could be yeah. that um, in whichever constituency there it's Labour voters in Lib Dem Tory marginals who are going to go that way and so on anyway yeah so, um, I, so I, yeah. I don't i've been talking a lot so i want to get your thoughts on some of that but um before we before we go into the last five minutes or so but i mean the point is that from the data's perspective there is evidence of uncertainty on the remain side uh in the data and so therefore if someone says i think labor will squeeze the gap more um that is a conceivable and perfectly plausible outcome based on the data um whether or not that happens we can't know and the fact that the conservatives uh, vote se- vote share seems in- is-, is higher already it's in the 40s and it seems pretty solid is obviously encouraging for them so labor have got the work to do but there's enough in the data to suggest they could do it maybe yeah so i guess two two uh separate thoughts so um one is i certainly take from that a feeling like the uncertainty is more problematic for uh labor and lib dems than uh, than perhaps i'd realize those numbers are uh are striking um that it feels like 
that's actually pointing towards if if there is a a late swing then it's likely to be a late swing that helps the um the leave side unless it, it is indeed tactical i think the other question that um i'd be interested in talking about for a couple of minutes is what we should think about mrp obviously separate debate here but um in 2017 the yougov mrp poll was um something of an earthquake i think at the time it was a, a bit of a joke because it was so out of line with everything else that no one really knew what to make of it. It just seemed completely outlandish. In the end, while it didn't get it exactly right, it was uh, it got it in the direction much closer than, than almost all the traditional polls. Um, there's obviously MRP again this time, and that is um, pointing towards a sort of moderate-sized Tory majority in the kind of 40 to 60 territory, I think. Um and YouGov, I believe, are publishing their final MRP on Tuesday night. Now, I'd be interested in your take of how far we should treat MRP as more credible and important and worthy of attention than any other poll, or ultimately is this um, a nice bit of analysis that is is really interesting, but is ultimately because it's still based on a sample and polling data is inherently no more credible than any other poll that's going to land in the next few days. I mean, so it's obviously a great bit of work and MRP, what it will give you is large scale sample sizes because it has to have that to do it, to do it. And it can be uh, provide a lot more granular evidence as to how this, um, uh, the, the national vote share will play out at the local level. And so when you're trying to work out actually what the end result will be, there's obviously value in in knowing what it's going to look like on a seat by seat basis rather than just national vote share. At the same time, it's only ever going to be as good as the uh, numbers that go into it. And that's not me. To, that's not me saying that I think that the YouGov numbers are wrong or anything like that. I mean, in reality, they're quite close to what ours are. So, but um, but you know, we we let's go back to 2015 for example. Um, let's take YouGov out of this for a minute. Um, there were loads of models, if you remember, in 20, people forget in 2015, uh, where people were doing seat projections, and they were all wrong because the data that they were using uh, came from polling data that was wrong. Um, and I think as a separate, probably less sort of uh, less sort of um, what's the word I'm looking for. Uh, less terrifying so in a less sort of terrifying or dramatic sense um even the write-up in the first one that came out last uh, a couple of weeks ago did say that look this is based on a 10 or 11 point lead or whatever it was if the lead was six or seven a lot of seats can flip and it can be hung parliament territory so i don't think so when it comes out when the next one comes out on tuesday it will obviously get a lot of attention particularly if things have changed um but it doesn't necessarily mean uh, that that is definitely going to be the outcome a couple of days later for all sorts of reasons to do with late swing or just that some of the assumptions on turnout and um, uh, and how the numbers have been treated might not be might not be right. Maybe sometimes the outlier can be right, and uh, we've seen that with other polls in the past. So you definitely take it seriously. Uh, it's definitely a great bit of work and gives us a real granular look at the um, the local level. Uh, but again, it's just as vulnerable to things like margin of error and late swing as anything else. Um, or granted, it's a larger sample size. Yeah. Um, let's let's close the last couple last couple of minutes um, on just anything else we've noticed. Really, what stands out beyond the headline figures? I mean, for me, it's hard to. There were a couple of different ones I, I, were look, I was looking at. I mean, it's notable to me briefly that the NHS has gone up significantly as an issue in this campaign. Uh, so our numbers showed Brexit being the number one issue head and shoulders above everything else, whereas the NHS has sort of caught up. I don't think we need to talk about that too much, um, but it does seem to be 
uh, something that um, is worth noti- noticing. Uh, noting, and if Labour do end up forcing a hung Parliament, maybe we'll look back and go, oh, well, actually, that was one of the signs in the data, the fact that the NHS was surging as an issue. Um, but who, who knows? We'll have to see. But it's definitely gone up as an issue as the campaign's gone on, which is notable. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, I think the other the other one to talk about on those lines is climate change and the environment. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, this has been, as someone who's who's watched that over elections for many years, um, this has been easily the election where it's had the most salience and the most attention and, of course, the Channel 4 debate. And um, it's still moving up the trackers of what's the most important issue. And I think it's now solidly joint third in YouGov's issue, issue index at, at the same place as the economy, which is very striking. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that said, it's had perhaps less of a politically significant role in the election than, than it might have might have done. Um, I was I was thinking about this and digging into uh, in a, into a few things about it the other day, and I think I came to the conclusion that the way it's played out is for all the other parties, other than the Tories and Brexit Party, to be in one block that's roughly together. And essentially, those parties have been hitting the Tories for apparently being bad on on the environment and on climate um, and using that as a as a differentiator uh, against uh, against the Tories. Um, But they haven't been really combating one another on it. So there's been very little scrutiny of one another's environment and climate policies. In fact, the Channel 4 debate, there was very little discussion of one another poli- one another's policies. Everyone was pretty much just talking about their own. Um, and I think the, what that means and the, is... And the ice sculpture. Right, yeah, exactly. But that's exactly the point, that it was about we're all good, the Tories and the Brexit Party are bad. Um, and I think that's probably quite good news for Labour because essentially it allows them to say, look, do you want a Tory government or do you not want a Tory government? And that's useful for them in most constituencies uh for the lib dems i think it's probably they haven't found themselves in a very good place on the environment because if they want to be squeezing if they want to be taking votes off labor um and they they uh, clearly need to in in lots of places then for them to essentially be about the same as labor on the climate is probably not a helpful place for them to be so it feels like this is it's moved up its salience a long way compared with even two years ago, but it still hasn't become normal politics because it's it's become quite binary as good policy or not good policy in in how the parties are seeking to position themselves. And we probably need to talk about this on, on at more length on another day, but I do wonder whether the, the timing of the election in December um, maybe has had any impact at all on how salient this might have been if the election was in may and june but i don't know well maybe Um, but of course we had floods at the start of it so you know in the summer you'll get heat waves in in the winter you'll get floods so you can kind of have it either way okay well final comment from me i want to get your brief thoughts on before we go um you could spend a lot of time on these numbers but i think one of the other things that stands out so i talked earlier about how the nhs rising as an issue might end up being an indicator when we look back at why Labour closed the gap and forced hung Parliament if they do. On the flip side, an indicator that might explain when we look back why actually the Tories got a majority this time um, and Labour didn't do very well and fell back is Corbyn's personal poll ratings. So his net rating for leader satisfaction is currently at minus 44 in our tracker uh, from last week, taken Monday to Wednesday. Um, At this time with the campaign in 2017, his numbers were at minus 11, having recovered from minus 41 at the beginning of that campaign. So 
um, when people like Lewis Goodall and others uh, talk about um, their like vox pops and things and, and speaking to people about how Corbyn's not given, given the benefit of the doubt this time as much as he was last time, there is at least some evidence in the data to suggest that, that that's true um, at, from a quantitative perspective. Um, but the difference there is that Johnson's, on the Tory side, is that Johnson's ratings are minus 20, having been plus two at the beginning of the campaign. Um, at the time of the last election, May's were minus seven. Now, Mays had fallen from sky high plus 20s and this sort of thing during the campaign. They fell off a cliff. But Johnson's actually in a worse position than May. So curious in closing, just to get your thoughts on some of that. So I think it is so counterintuitive and so interesting that Johnson is less popular now than May was uh, in in her election. Um, I think it's absolutely not reflected at all by the media coverage um, and this sort of the commentary de- debate of the election and really striking and um, without wanting to, uh, to beat this drum too often, I feel like arguably again a gendered thing perhaps or or whatever it is that media has sort of made their mind up that Johnson is popular and the reality of the numbers not reflecting that is is really striking um I think final point uh I was really reminded of a mistake I made in 2015 when I was watching the uh um the individual leaders debates that um if you remember there was a moment where Ed, Ed Miliband was asked did Labour spend too much um and he said no and the audience just laughed like it it wasn't sort of it wasn't angry it was just like are you mad like ha, like it's mm. like they'd never heard anybody say that labor hadn't spent too much and i think at the time i should have realized that that was a very a very telling sign that labor was not where the polls suggested they were and i think in 2017 corbyn you could kind of see that he was being accepted to to some extent but i think just the way the audience is and obviously the, there are arguments about whether the audience has been selected but the kind of questions that people have put to corbyn and the kind of responses they've had have just left me feeling this is not this doesn't feel like an election labor are going to win it really feels like the what you see from the focus group reports what uh, what you see from from the tv debates and the audience's questions and the responses is that Labour is not in a place where the country want to put them in power. Um, and obviously that's only qualitative. And obviously, as you mentioned before, there are issues with the, the selection of people in focus groups and, and on TV debates, audiences and so on. But it just like, it just feels like this is this is not a, a, not a leadership and a set of policies that that the country wants to elect, even even if you didn't see any other numbers, it, 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 it doesn't feel like a good place for Labour. No, it doesn't. I mean, I think the, I don't want to dwell on this comparison because we're running out of time. But it, the only argument you can make for a Labour government is a sort of um, a comparison with Trump losing the popular vote in the states, but winning because of the electoral co- the quirkeries, the vagaries of the electoral college. Um, obviously, very different political environment. Um, but Trump was someone that had terrible favorability ratings, um, but was up against someone that was had better ratings than he did in Hillary Clinton. But was also, but she also had very poor ones, and she was toxic to a certain uh he was very to- he was toxic but she was toxic too to a different part of the electorate and you know you can flip the script a little bit with uh with corbyn and johnson and say well corbyn's ratings are pretty bad but johnson's aren't much better and maybe in in, in the end uh because of our first past the post system uh labor can uh, come a uh, come a distant second in terms of votes and seats but cobble together something with the S P and lib dems i mean my, my feeling all the way through has been that it feels like a tory majority just because if you look at the 
Uh, if you look at the voting intention polling, look at the leader ratings, um, look at the Tories' lead on Brexit. But, I mean, the, un- the unknown is that uncertainty on the Remain side between Labour and Lib Dem and how much Labour can squeeze that. But even then, I think what makes me lean towards Tory majority rather than hung Parliament is that the, the, the argument for Labour to, to end up in office is that there's some sort of hung Parliament with the Tories winning by, well, either the polls being wrong, granted, or the Tories winning by four or five or six, um, but not being able to uh, not being able to get the cobbles together enough seats. You know, it's, 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 there's a lot of if, buts and maybes about it. But look, we've been, you know, um, uncertain results, um, unpredictable results have happened in the recent past. So we'll just have to wait and see what happens on, um, on Thursday. Yeah, and it could happen. Um, even if we think it probably won't. Um, Leo Brassi, thanks as ever for your contributions. Uh, that was the Political Betting Polling Matters podcast. Uh, if you like what you hear, a bit of a longer one this time, but that's fine. There is a lot going on. Uh, if you like what you hear, please do share us on social media. Tell a friend about us. Give us a positive rating on iTunes or other podcast apps. We very much appreciate it. There'll be maybe one more Ipsos Mori Elections podcast in the next couple of days. Uh, but otherwise, I imagine the next pod will be some kind of uh, debrief slash post-mortem, <laughs> depending on how we get on. Uh, Why did we get it all so wrong this yeah, time? Yeah, exactly. Uh, Friday onwards. But uh, let's see. Let's see how we get on. But for now, thanks for listening. And let's keep an eye on what happens on Thursday. <laughs>